Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. We can meditate and wonder whether our descendants, because I think they'll still be here, what they will think about us. And let us hope that at least they will give us the benefit of the doubt. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Joining us on the episode today is Ashley Berner, a professor from Johns Hopkins University who specializes in the history of education. What Ashley and I discuss is kind of the long-running discussion regarding several tensions in the United States and many Western democracies about how best to educate children. Uh, And these tensions are largely framed around what Ashley calls a liberal arts education and then later come to be known as knowledge-rich teaching versus the progressive education or what later comes to be known as skills-based education. Also within that argument is a discussion that Ashley is becoming quite the national expert on, and that is the uniformity versus pluralism and how the United States went from a pluralistic educational model to a very common school uh, educational model and a very uniform methods for educating, uh, particularly K through 12. I hope you enjoy this discussion. I found it very helpful, particularly understanding many of our common debates that we have today. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Ashley Rogers Berner. She is the director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy and an associate professor of education at Johns Hopkins. Professor Berner has a PhD in modern European history with a focus on intellectual history or the history of ideas. Over the past several years, she's focused on, in a sense, the history of education in the United States. And her book, American Public Education, No One Way to School, was out in 2017. She has traveled around the nation discussing pluralism in education. Ashley, welcome to History 605. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I was glad you were able to join us today. I think uh, when you think about history, often things like education that are so kind of in the water in daily life, we don't necessarily think of them having a a discreet or a, a, a history of their own. Well, let's start with intellectual history. What is what is that? Can you describe it in a, in a fairly brief term about well, how one approaches the history of ideas? Sure. So one of my uh, focus points, actually, since I was a kid and fascinated by history, was how do some ideas become taken for granted and other ideas don't? Like, it can be a wonderful idea or a terrible idea, but does that have anything to do with whether or not it becomes mainstream? So I've looked at different ideologies um, and their history and the way in which they became a yes 
or a no. Hmm. And so, for example, democracy. Democracy was a novel concept in the modern world, and we fought, in the United States we fought a war and actually threw out the king, and so we take that for granted. So certain ideas and practices become taken for granted, and my, my focus in intellectual history was, how does that happen? Okay. So what, in a, is there a general rule for how a, an idea becomes a powerful <laughs> implemented force? Well, I, you know, I think uh, my bias is towards the sort of sociology of, of thought and Peter Berger's work, James Hunter's work, that assume that an idea doesn't live on its own that for an idea to be adopted as mainstream, it has to be carried at both the grassroots and the elite level by people with access to political and financial and moral, ethical, um, artistic capital who can plug away at the same direction for a long period of time. Right. So when you actually look at social movements that became accepted, and successful, like the abolitionist movement. Mm -hmm. You see exactly that. You see leaders of the movement who represent different high-level areas of, of culture and who also pulled in the direction of, in the same direction for 30 years mm -hmm. and also seeded grassroots movements that made the moral case to the general population. And actually, we see a very similar process at work when we look at the history of education. Right. And certainly, education is in our, our politics. It's, it's in ways around the state and in localities on the ballot uh, in a couple weeks. And, um, That's right. Well, um, so let's talk about uh, education then. Uh, certainly, one of the um, oldest arguments, and a lot of undergraduates in college wrestle with this idea, the nature versus nurture argument. And, and there's this guy named John Locke who came up with this uh, uh, idea about when we are born, we are a blank slate. Um, chat a little bit about how that idea uh, has impacted how people were educated. Um, mm -hmm. Sure. So there are essentially the nature versus nurture on the one, and both have been, both both approaches have been very very influential, including in the 20th century, um, 20 and 21st century. So the theory would go something like this: On the one hand, human beings are born without any kind of framework, and it's the role of the adults to fill that framework with content, knowledge, experiences, moral formation, and so forth. On the other hand, you have the kind of Rousseauian and John Dewey approach, the romantic approach, mm -hmm. that says the child is born with everything he or she needs, and we can't impose anything on the child. We have to help the child discover his or her own passion. And that's, and I'm speaking in very blunt terms, right. um, but, but, but that's the kind of contrast. Now, I just want to say for a moment that there... We're talking about the content and the pedagogy of education. I, I like to think about the several, the, the structure of education and the content is having two separate different histories. And I'm happy to talk about that. Okay. But, but when you're talking about the theory of how kids learn, right. you're, you're talking about, um, you know, the, uh, 
the, the requirement that kids learn content knowledge in a liberal arts education and versus the learning how to learn, just help them look stuff up, help them, you know, in, in sort of in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And I am firmly of the view that the approach to the academic curriculum is, is the far better course. Right. Well, let's, let's, uh, you mentioned a couple names there, John Dewey being one of them, and uh, um, who, who are the other big educational theorists in American history? Well, you know, the interesting thing is there was a, a, a wonderful debate, actually, in the late 19th and early 20th century between different camps, on the one side arguing for democratizing the liberal arts curriculum, basically, mm-hmm. saying, you know, we should give every kid access to Latin. We should give every child access to, you know, the rigor of advanced mathematics and so forth. And that was by far the long, strong suit of democratic education. And on the other hand, you had the progressive movement, and this was across all the English-speaking countries, by the way. Um, You had in, in England the University College London Teachers College that said, no, 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 education is not about content. It's about education. It's about psychological development. And so you had... Teachers Columbia in the United States, mm-hmm. University College London, that were really focused and hammered home the skills-based approach. And so some of the names that are associated with that would be G. Stanley Hall, who was a psychologist in the United States, Herbert Spencer, who oh, yeah. was uh, Charles Darwin's um, cousin, and he's the one who actually popularized the survival of the species. He, they had different approaches, but they both thought the academic curricula was a bad idea. G. Stanley Hall and um, you know didn't, and Herbert Spencer basically didn't think that most kids could handle it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were part of the eugenics movement, mm-hmm. and so they wanted to dumb down the curriculum and just give kids like skills. That's it to become tradespeople as if they had no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, you had you know the president. Charles Eliot of Harvard University, who said, no, you've got to democratize the liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. That's probably too much, edu- that's probably too much, too much information, but there were certainly intellectual battles at, at the teacher colleges and in states about which was the right approach. And in our country, the skills-based progressive approach that was Dewey and, and G. Stanley Hall and then, you know, Piaget, uh, the kind of learning how to learn, won in the 20th century. Right. Many successful countries didn't go that route. Okay. They democratized the liberal arts curriculum. And Finland, for example, gave every kid access to the most rigorous content and then allowed them to differentiate as they got older. But they were differentiating on the basis of real experience with rigor. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What's the format of um, that liberal arts education that Finland, or in your writing you talk a lot about the Dutch, what Holland might have done in the mm-hmm. early 20th century. What, what, what does that look like for them? In, in, in the Netherlands? Right. Well, the, the interesting thing is that I, I mentioned earlier the structure and the content being two different trajectories. Mm-hmm. The United States went from a, a required liberal arts curriculum 
that, of course, I would say needs to be updated for today's world. Um, I certainly don't believe in just the Western canon. There are many, many diverse populations that need to be con- con- included. So, so sure. um, the, that's, that's the piece that was so um, devastating across the board in the United States. But then you have to look at the structure. And the structure in the United States is now quite unitary, where we have one, we, we kind of believe that only the district school is public education. We didn't used to be. And we used to fund all different kinds of schools on equal footing and allow those schools to create different norms and ethical frameworks, whether it was Catholic or secular or Lutheran or Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, that was how we, we, that was the structure. It was pluralistic until the end of the 19th century. The Netherlands went in the opposite direction. They had, they were very diverse as a population in the early 19th century and across the century became more and more pluralistic. So now the Netherlands is the most plural structure of education in the world. They fund 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing, hmm. Islamic, socialist, Montessori, um, evangelical. They also have what we would call district schools that mm-hmm. are still on offer, but this is the norm in democracies around the world that you fund a lot of different schools, but like the Netherlands, you hold them all to a high bar academically. Mm-hmm. So the Netherlands is fascinating, and I'm really glad you picked that that um, example because yes, they fund 36 different kinds of schools, but all kids have to demonstrate knowledge on like competence with broad knowledge domains. So, for example, comparative religion and ethics is a requirement every year, almost. And so even if you're in a Jewish school you have that's funded by the government, you have to know what Hindus believe. You have to know what Catholics believe. Similarly, if you're in a secular school, you have to learn, you know, or, or you're in a Catholic school, you have to learn what Marx believed. It's just a matter of educational preparation. So... So that's kind of held the the common good together, this shared content mm-hmm. across differences. Mm-hmm. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. And so I guess the question is, in the United States, you talked about uh, in the late 19th century, we went to the common school model. Who, who develops and then advocates for the common school? So that's a very good question. So in the United States early on, now, of course, we always have to qualify that by saying not everyone was allowed to obtain an education. Sure. Obviously, our country has a very dark history there with respect to the enslaved populations and the treatment of indigenous families and so forth. So um, I, I, I don't want to elide that point. But where there was state funding, or back then it was more likely county or city or town funding for education, mm-hmm. the states would collect taxes and fund schools that reflected the demography of the population. So you had a, a, a town that was 90% Lutheran and 10% Catholic. There would probably be several Lutheran schools and a Catholic school that were state-funded. Mm-hmm. In some of the large boroughs in New York City, for example, there could be Jewish schools, de facto Jewish schools. Um, and, and this was this was very, very common in the colonial period, in the federal period, and when Horace Mann in the 1830s 
was the, became the first commissioner of education in Massachusetts, he argued passionately against this structure. Why? He was concerned that having different kinds of schools would create divisions in the population. Mm -hmm. So he was very concerned about Catholic schools, evangelical schools, um, schools that weren't all alike. So he made the argument for what he called, came to be called the common school, that all kids should have the same kind of experience. The common school notion that he promoted was not popular. When he articulated it, it was met with kind of indifference on the part of the majority of people. And what happened is, you know, the pluralistic structure continued until the middle of the 19th century when millions of Catholic immigrants arrived in the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, this is simplifying, but the presence of so many Catholics overwhelmed this sense of uh, acceptance for funding for diverse schools. And the Protestant majority that was white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant did not believe that the Catholic schools could generate good citizens. They didn't think that it was appropriate to fund Catholic schools so many. It was really a matter of the quantity. They were fine to fund 10% 10 of the population to attend Catholic schools, but when that hit 50% in Boston, that was a threat. And so from the middle of the century, of the 19th century to the beginning of the 20th, you see what I described earlier, elite and grassroots movements that was anti-Catholic school funding. Now, they didn't just say we're, anti, we're anti-Catholic. They couched it in terms of, you know, non-religious. And I'm going to get back to that in a second. Right. But you had the Know Nothing Party and mm-hmm. the post-Civil War Republican Party um, arguing to defund Catholic schools. And you also had the grassroots movements like the Ku Klux Klan that were firebombing Catholic neighborhoods, firebombing Catholic churches, mm-hmm. protesting 60,000 strong in the street of Philadelphia about the Catholic wow. Bible being used in some of the schools. And that over time, chipped away at the broad acceptance of educational pluralism. And you know very well that many state constitutions prohibited funding for religious schools. That was a code, this was in the late 19th and early 20th century. This uniformity essentially said only one kind of School counts as public schools. It's the district school. We're not funding Catholic schools or Lutheran schools or Jewish schools. End of that. However, and this is the great hypocrisy, those same legislatures at the same time period required that the common schools, the district schools, have Protestant prayers, Protestant Bibles, Protestant um, you know, rituals, and so forth. So you can see that it was really, it was a majoritarian oppression of anybody who wasn't white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. A lot of the early Supreme Court cases were about this. Um, Many, many, many of, you know, my parents grew up in district schools where they were effectively Protestant until the Supreme Court appropriately, in 1960, started to secularize the district schools. Right. What is the Supreme Court? rulings that have been 
since the mid twentieth century about the right. So some of the ver- so so the the early twentieth century cases the the first times the first few times that the Supreme Court interfered with state education laws, it was actually about these nativist movements. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the very famous Society of Sisters versus Pierce in Oregon. Oregon had, this was in 1925, Oregon had effectively not only defunded Catholic schools, but effectively made them illegal. Hmm. And the Supreme Court weighed in on that and said, you, you know, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Right. And it was a positive vote for at least the legality of non-district schools. Um, there were also some early cases about the rights of tribal communities to have Catholic education in their mm-hmm. territory that was mm-hmm. funded by the federal government. And then, you know, a lot of cases about viewpoint diversity, the Jehovah's Witnesses who didn't want to salute the flag and so forth. Sure. But, um, and then you had the secularization of the district schools, which I think is appropriate to the federal constitution. This was in the 60s and 70s and 80s. You also have the beginning of the affirmation by the Supreme Court that from a federal constitution constitutional perspective, funding diverse schools is is constitutional in certain circumstances. Right. So the very like Zellman is one of the most famous cases that was in I think nineteen ninety two that affirmed the right of Ohio to have vouchers, tax credit funded vouchers. Right. As long as the money does not go directly to the school, as long as it goes to the parents and it is the, res- the parents' decision to enroll their kids in a school, a non-district school is um, meet the mediator between the establishment clause and free exercise clause. Okay. So it's very, very, very interesting. There have been a lot of you know recent cases yes. um, from... Uh, you know, a case in Montana two, mm-hmm. two or three years ago to the most recent ruling in, uh, about Maine that says if you're going to provide a tax credit or voucher funding, you can't disqualify religious schools. So, you know, state constitutions differ, mm-hmm. and, but, the, but the bottom line is from a federal perspective, as long as certain, um, is certain is the enabling law that allows funding to go to religious schools or non-religious private schools, as long as that enabling law is neutral and as long as parental choice is involved, it is federally constitutional. Right. It is interesting, you know, James G. Blaine uh, was Secretary of State when South Dakota came into the Union in 1889, and he was the mover of what we call the Blaine Amendment, which is in our Constitution, and about 30 other states, I think, have a version that's very... Yeah, so James Blaine was um, a senator from Maine, and he was at the forefront in the late 19th century of, of, of the federal, the, there was going, he, he wanted a federal amendment to the right. U.S. Constitution that forbade funding for religious schools. That mm-hmm. amendment failed, but 30, some 36, I think, state constitutions include a version of what we call Blaine Amendments, Baby Blaine. And, um, (laughs) you know, the Blaine Amendments in some states are so, Massachusetts, for example, are so Hmm. anti, they're so clear that a voucher could, basically couldn't be constitutional according to the state constitution. However, tax credits, education tax credits, 
because that money does not go to the state. It is a uh, a, a donation that a, a a corporation or individual can make, not to their child's education, but to a scholarship granting organization. Tax credits are constitutionally viable in every state. Yeah, at least they've never been negatively adjudicated. So you mentioned Montana; they had a Supreme Court um, case involving their Blaine Amendment, I think, three years ago. And I believe you did you write a uh, amicus brief for that or? For Carson v. Macon? Right. Yes, I did. I wrote an amicus brief for the Institute for Justice that kind of said, look, you know, the state, the the, the case in in Maine is interesting because it really didn't concern vouchers per se, but because there are so many small towns in, in Maine that don't have high schools, the state has always made a provision for families to enroll their kids in a private school that is funded by the state if just so that the, the children have access to a high school. Mm-hmm. Well, in recent years, the state decided not to fund that if the high, receiving high schools are religious. And they, had, they were very, very specific about what was religious enough to mean mm-hmm. they couldn't fund that approach and mm-hmm. so forth. And the Supreme Court, I think, rightly said, no, if you, you can't discriminate against religious beliefs mm-hmm. um, in religious schools. And and I think that was the right decision in that case. It's very, very interesting, and there's a lot of speculation as to how that may affect litigation going forward. All right. Uh, yeah, I think I said Montana, but I meant Maine, and you caught me there, so thanks for the Oh, Montana, the yes. Montana yeah. had the big tax credit um, yes, a scholarship where they, they, they were also refusing to give the tax credit. They had a general tax credit fund, and they weren't were not, would not allow the money to flow to religious schools because they thought that was required mm-hmm. of them. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, it, 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 it actually isn't required. It was the same kind of principle. Mm-hmm. However, you know... The, the the feds cannot the the constitution does not require that a state fund religious schools, but you can't have a general benefit without um, extending. With you can't discriminate. Right. There's no discrimination for religion or other. But reasons I think about. I think the big thing we we face with the the constitutional issue is that most of us walk around with the. The, the phrase separation of church and state built into our heads. Well, that phrase can be very much misunderstood. Right. It, the Supreme Court's rulings on not just education, but any number of things suggests that there is not a, an inseparable wall. Mm-hmm. Certainly there can't be a United States church or there can't be direct funding of some things like a school, but there are all kinds of public-private partnerships that include religious entities that are completely constitutional. So we right. just have to be careful how we use that phrase. Right, right. Well, let's, let's double back a little bit and talk about um, uh, the, the skills versus knowledge, uh, or, or I think you phrased it, liberal arts education, and the Harvard president who advocated for um, the liberal arts education as it would have been understood in his day and time. Um, compared to Horace Mann, who was thinking about skills and kind of what we've become uh, to call constructivist education or the constructivist methods. What is, what is the issue there with, 
what a skills-based education uh, where's right. the deficit? So that's yeah. that, that's really good. So this is this is where the history of educational content comes in, mm-hmm. and you know, for all the disagreements that I have with Horace Mann about the structure of education, he did have a clear view about the quality of the content. Um, but but you know, most most schools in the 19th century had not the same textbooks, but similar textbooks, and in many cases the same textbooks. But the path to becoming a teacher was to demonstrate knowledge, uh, competency, like an exit exam from high school that you knew a lot about science, math, history, the arts, foreign languages, even Latin. Fifty percent of students in high schools, in the, well, fifty percent of students um, in the early 20th century studied Latin and, Hmm. you know, before all the progressive movement hit. But generally it was seen as as democratizing the liberal arts curriculum was seen as a path to equity, to social opportunity and social mobility and democratic formation. And the, the, the recent research that we've seen suggests that that is absolutely right. Yeah. That is the game changer for low-income families, and we can talk about why and where some of that research is coming from. But conversely, the the, the skills over content uh, was in, in very appealing. It was the sort of calling card of the new teacher training institutes, the teacher colleges. That it's about developmental psychology. It's about helping kids find their interest. It's about not imposing a body of knowledge. And I just want to just to highlight one of the best writers on this is Diane Ravitch. Mm-hmm. Now, Diane Ravitch, I, I disagree with her, obviously, on the, the, the structure of education. She's a, a defender of district schools only. But her book called Left Back from 2000 really chronicles the, what she calls the attack on the academic curriculum. And, you know, if I can just read a a section from her introduction to that book, I'm just going to look it up right now. She says, schools must do far more than teach children how to learn and how to look things up. They have to teach children which knowledge has most value, how to use that knowledge, how to organize what they know, how to understand the relationship between past and present, how to tell the difference between accurate information and propaganda, the great virtue of the academic tradition. It organizes human knowledge. It makes a coherent, a chaotic world coherent. So anyway, she really mm-hmm. chronicles the progressive attack on the academic curriculum. And again, the academic curriculum isn't rote learning. It doesn't mean rote learning, memorization. There should be some learning by heart, of course, yeah. but the academic curriculum really refers to a breadth of knowledge about art, philosophy, history, geography, um, you know, economics, mm-hmm. all of these really important areas. Our students are not given this, by and large, in our country. Um, and, and it's problematic because that, you know, well-resourced families have the, the, the means and the educational background to open the world up for their kids, to, talk, to travel, to talk about current events and so forth. 
um, newcomers to our country, low-income families in general don't have that social capital and those opportunities and the educational heft in their own homes. And so schools must, must give kids access to knowledge. Edie Hirsch is also another wonderful writer on this topic. Right. Um, Hirsch and I imagine Ravitch also talk about uh, that opportunity gap or that um, the, the... Oh, yes, the TNTP. TNTP oh, right. came yeah. out, which is... Uh, is that the, the opportunity myth? Yes, yes. The opportunity myth is a report that was published by TNTP, I think, in 2018, 2019, where they, they went into classrooms across the country, all different kinds of classrooms. It was a huge study, and they found that... If you were a low-income child, your odds of having, quote, on-grade-level material in your classroom were something like 40%. Mm. That most of the time, your assignments, your classroom instruction was well below grade level. And I think grade level is a low bar. Grade level is kind of a minimum mm-hmm. um, in our country. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, you know, most, most to, to put it succinctly, most of our schools under-challenge our students. Right. So, And the best way to start challenging students and give them rigorous, engaging material is to bring in a knowledge-rich curriculum. And are the schools that are doing this, what are they seeing when they do this, particularly with low-income students? So the, the school districts that have... So we, we do, as our, at our institute, we have worked with many, many district systems and and my colleague David Steiner has worked with state systems through the council. The CCSSO mm-hmm. is the Council for Chief State School Officers. It's the membership organization of commissioners of education. They have been working with 13 states right now to try to in, ensure high quality and, in some cases, knowledge-rich curriculum in mm-hmm. the in the. In their schools, it is really challenging. But schools that do it and systems that do it, they often see a slight dip in their test scores in the first year just because the teachers are learning how to teach something more rigorous and teachers need a lot of support. But then after the first year or two, the the children's academic scores are Soaring, hmm. and I, I don't think it's all about the academic scores. I think it's when you look long term, there are other outcomes. But for sure, when you teach children more history content, more engaging, viewpoint diverse, interesting questions about the human experience, all kinds of good things happen. Right. Whereas if you drill and drill and drill on find the main idea, provide evidence for X, and that's all you do, you are really shortchanging kids, and the test scores show it. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we, we've seen some amazing things. And uh, I can point to some specific examples. Okay. Um, when Chicago Public Schools put the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program in 17 of their low-performing high schools, and they gave teachers the full-on, these were normal teachers, low-performing high schools. They gave teachers the International Baccalaureate Professional Development Training. Oh, yeah. 
those kids had a 40% greater chance of going to college and, and a 50% greater chance of going to a selective college. It's a game changer yeah. that when Rahm Emanuel was mayor of Chicago, he made IB programs the signature of his, of his service. Wow. Um, there, you know, Duval County in Jacksonville, Florida, went from a homegrown curriculum to core knowledge, language, arts, and eureka math. And the, they, they really spent time with teachers. You have to have to spend concerted hours with professional development and classroom mm-hmm. support. Um, the next year, the kids had six point. I think it was a six point gain in um, test scores. And, and there are now I don't know how many districts in Florida that are emulating that process. Yeah. It, it makes a difference. And kids are excited, and their parents are excited. Right. Well, it strikes me that, that you talked about pluralistic schools. Uh, I've seen, whether they're studies or just my own experience of, of watching parents being involved in schools, when the parents understand what the children are learning, the children will do better. And uh, a pluralistic... The, the, super, the, the superintendent of Duval County Schools had children in the... In the had children in the school system when he brought in core knowledge, language, arts. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the most gratifying things was when his little elementary school children were talking about Roman architecture yeah. and just so enlivened by it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Wit and Wisdom does the same thing. It just provides content-rich material that is children love to be experts. And I think what we've seen is that often it's the teachers who need the reassurance and the background knowledge themselves. I mean, you have to realize in today's world, most of our teaching force didn't have the, did not go through a, a liberal arts curriculum. Right. They had the same skill, kind of skills-based, you know, homegrown, selected off of the internet kind of materials, and they they need every bit of support to be, you know, to be consistent. Um, and it's, it's right. very gratifying when teachers learn the difference between, you know, find the main idea in the Declaration of Human Rights, which is a very, very boring way to approach it, and actually <laughs> asking the big questions about this amazing document. Right. Like, why, did, why was it important in the 1940s to articulate, you know, universal human rights? Like, who would argue against it? Well. Right. What had just happened in human history and what was happening in the United States mm-hmm. that made it, you know, hypocritical for us to sign it? All kinds of rich questions. It's, it's night and day Yes, when teachers come to understand that. Right. Um, well, Ashley, uh, we've really had a great conversation, and I, I wanted to uh, see, though, if we track back a little bit to make sure we finish off with a historical uh, example and so forth. What do you think, um, Horace Mann, that we've talked about, uh, what would he, if he was around today, would he say that his vision was was uh, done poorly? Or what were the changes along the way that, that may have sent it sideways from what he, he assumed would Well, that's would a really happen? interesting question. What would Horace Mann say about the kind of common school model? Mm-hmm. Well, well, first of all, I think he would be uh, upset and stunned by the amount of bureaucracy that actually impinges on the common school model. Um, I think, you know, when he was 
in charge of Massachusetts, we were talking about small towns right. and the kind of schools that, that they could grow. I think he would be deeply sad about the the dilution of the academic content that he really did promote, you know, in his mm-hmm. own way. I don't know if he would be convinced that pluralism, which is what the, you know, the United States went from pluralism to uniformity. Most democracies were plural and still are. And still In fact, are. more and yeah. more democracies that mm-hmm. weren't plural are becoming plural. Australia, for example. Um, but at least in the structure. So I, I don't know if he would be convinced. I certainly hope he would be, and I would love to have coffee with him and see what he thought. <laughs> right. What would you, you implied that there was, uh, regarding pluralism, that there is no constitutional bar or Supreme Court case that says that the, the states couldn't do this, couldn't have a pluralistic school form, as long as the funding wasn't going directly to um, the non-public schools. Is that the case? Was the question, what would pluralism look like in the United States? Right. What would pluralism look like right. if there's no bar against so, it? So I think the main thing that educational pluralism would look like would be um, not pitting entire sectors against each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the, one of the sad consequences of the uniformity has been that, you know, any departure from the district school is seen as illegitimate or a threat. And you even look at the word school choice, and it's, it's, it, nobody else uses this term but the United States. School choice is like asking for an exception to the norm. So one of the, 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 the real good, I think, of educational pluralism, it would look like all parents, not just wealthy parents, but all parents can find a school that meets their needs. All those schools would be high quality. That's, mm-hmm. I've got to get that in there. But it would, so it would look like parents being able to say, look, I don't want a big high school. I want a small high school. I want classical model. I want religious schooling or a socialist school or whatever they want. But I also think from the policy perspective, we could put our weapons down because pluralism says all schools matter. We're not going to differentiate. We're not going to say a Catholic school is worth more inherently than a district school or a district school is inherently superior to a charter school. We're not even going to research which school sector is, quote, the best. We're going to just expect all schools to get better continuously. Yeah, I think we would save ourselves so much of our our agony and battles, if we could just say all schools matter, we're going to support all schools and make sure they're good. Right. End of story. Right. Well, Ashley, thanks for the walk down a historical lane about education and the common schools and the model and so forth. Certainly, um, many people uh, went to colleges that used to be uh, normal schools. Um, there are three normal That's schools, right. in the, former normal schools in the state system in South Dakota. Now they've changed their name, but uh, that that um, ghost sometimes literally uh, <laughs> well not literally uh, General Beadle uh, was the president of Dakota State University, which used to be Dakota Normal University, and and the students joke that General Beadle's ghost is still somewhere walking around campus. But um, certainly the methods that they put in uh, uh, are with us today, for better or worse. Right. So, um, well, the the common the, the normal school model was the 
the model that was ubiquitous. I mean, I, in my mm-hmm. graduate degree over in England, I studied the the normal schools, the teacher training institutes in England over a hundred year period, and mm. they were focused on two things: content knowledge and classroom management. Those were the two things because teachers, to get accepted to the normal school, had to pass a tough exam that was content rich, mm-hmm. and then they had to go deeper into the content. They had to know where the subject was going, and I think that's really compelling. And they also learned classroom management, and they had apprenticeships. And yeah. when the the teacher preparation regime in the English speaking countries migrated away from the normal school model and into the school of education model that was, you know, Mm. that's when the pressure to become not about content but about developmental psychology really took root. And, you know, there there was, in my view, a real loss there. It doesn't have to be that way, but... That's been the 20th century and certainly early part of the 21st century. Right. So when did that kind of, uh, when did the developmental model um, become ubiquitous? So the developmental, the the focus on developmental psychology took a lot of different shapes, Mm -hmm. but I think part of it was an attempt to put teachers on a, to professionalize the, the, you know, to professionalize teaching and my view is teachers have incredible expertise when they walk around with this kind of knowledge and, and of academic knowledge and the pedagogy of conveying it well and engaging students and inquiry-based Socratic seminars and all this. Mm-hmm. That is expertise on steroids that right. we need. Right. But at the time, in the early 20th century, there was insecurity about that as a professional professionalism um, to differentiate mm-hmm. from the normal population. And so, where, but wherein would teachers' expertise lie? Ah, the new science of psychology. And yeah. I can tell you, I, I trace this in the teacher prep textbooks mm-hmm. that the purpose of education shifted in the English speaking countries from being about bequeathing the next generation with the knowledge and skills of citizenship and so forth to studying child development, and nurturing children's interests. Now, that is that is not by no means the only thing going on, but sure. that was a long, strong suit. Yeah. So I guess to wrap this up, we have, we have kind of three strands, and I, I could, um, I'll struggle to repeat them here, but that, that shift from knowledge to developmental um, preparation right. for the teachers— Yes, and so what happens now is there there are very few colleges of education that have anything close to the content knowledge that, you know, even in England um, right now, teachers have to have an undergraduate degree that is subject-specific, not just how to teach math, but you've got to know math inside and out, and then you have an additional year, postgraduate year of teacher training. Mm. Um, And I think that's a really compelling model because then, You've given teachers the tools of pedagogy, to be sure, but you've also ensured that they know where the subject is going. And um, Finland, the same thing. Many Singapore, the same thing. Some of the highest-performing school systems have that approach. Yes. 
Well, Ashley, what's what's uh, next for you? Have you got another book coming out? I do. I have. I just uh, signed a, a, a contract with Harvard Education Press to write about pluralism and democracy. So okay. it will be more of a practical book than my first book. Okay. It will be less theoretical and more about well, how do we actually make this happen? How does this? Yeah. How does a, the plural structure and a sh- common content? Right common content, how does that work together right here and right now in our polarized America? Right. So I'm really looking forward to digging in deeply to that, and I hope I get to come back on your podcast. Yeah. Well, you have a standing invitation, so. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure, and I look forward to learning more about what you all are doing and and the state and and your standards and so forth. I, I know all good things will happen. Right. Well, thanks a lot. Ashley Rogers-Burner is the director of Johns Hopkins Institute of Education Policy at uh, Johns Hopkins University, and it's been wonderful to chat with you today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.